This reading is from the second book of Corinthians, starting at chapter 11, sorry, in chapter 11, starting at uh, verse 16. So please uh, either open your Bibles or your church newsletter and join me in reading this curious passage. Okay, starting at verse 16. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labours, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among my brethren. I have been in labour and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who he who has blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. This morning, uh, we begin a three-week series on church planting, our vision series. Now, if you're a person who still doesn't know what church planting means, because it is a phrase that's, as I said in the weekly email this week, it's Christianese, like it's a jargon word that only gets used inside the church. Basically, it means the starting of new churches. Uh, it is called planting rather than like starting or initiating, because we don't say church starting or church initiating. 
because actually Jesus used uh, botanical imagery when he talked about the kingdom of God. Uh, we the people do the planting, but God does the growing. The Apostle Paul said that the congregations, that congregations require um, pastoral nurturing, and this is kind of like gardening. So when he wrote to the church in Corinth, he described them as God's field, where some ministers planted, some watered, and some reaped. The New York church planner Tim Keller says, For this reason, this gardening metaphor shows that when we think about measuring the effectiveness of a church plant, we shouldn't just think about notions of how successful uh, it looks on the outside or even how faithful the planter and the congregation has been. He says that gardeners do have to be faithful, they do, but they also have to be skillful in the, or the plants won't grow. So as we heard from Joe, she's a much better gardener than I am. I, I don't have the skills that she has. So she knows when a plant is looking sick, what to do. If it's been attacked by bugs or possums, she has these tricks to make it come back to life. She's faithful to attending her plants, but she's also got skills. But ultimately, Joe's, uh, the success of Joe's veggies and herbs and vines and indoor plants, and the success of any church planting ministry for that matter, is determined by factors beyond the control of the gardener or the planter or the, or the people involved. The fruit of the garden and the church plant varies according to soil conditions. So for church plants, you can plant in the Bible Belt of America, where I've heard that you just have to put a sign up in the local supermarket that a new church is starting, open the doors and you have 100 people walk in the door on the first Sunday. And then very soon after a few weeks, you can have a few hundred people. And that's because in the Bible Belt, there are so many Christians, such a high percentage of the population and people want to go to church. And so in a context like that, when you plant a church, I guess things can grow quickly, but then the conditions can be, be completely different in, say, a more secular city like Melbourne or a, a secular part of Melbourne like the inner north or even in a country like a fundamentalist Muslim country where Christians are persecuted, you plant a church in a context like that, the soil conditions are, are very difficult. And so the way the garden grows looks very different. It's a lot harder to grow in those contexts. It doesn't mean you don't try. It's just a lot harder. Also, when we think about the, the parallels between the soil conditions, we think about this concept of hardness of heart. Some groups of people have a greater hardness of heart than others. So they, they, these are weak, weaker conditions. It doesn't mean you don't plant in these contexts. Sometimes they're the best places to plant in the sense that it's the, they're the hardest reached people. But things look very different and those, the outcome is very much in God's hands. Church planning has been going on for about 2,000 years. Well, it has been. Uh, ever since God sent the Holy Spirit uh, at Pentecost and it poured down and it filled the disciples' hearts and empowered them and inspired them to start churches. 
If we read Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, we'll see what um, it looked like back then. Church planting, it says, this is the, the kind of, I guess, the first church plant being described. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were, were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is an exciting picture of a flourishing church. And it's provided a vision for churches throughout the ages, ever since the church began, for what could be possible These excited Christians devoted themselves. They persevered with these activities of teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. It seems very perfect and idealistic, doesn't it? And we should remember also that just a few chapters later in the book of Acts, Luke, the author, starts listing some of the problems, the the, the deep problems that emerged very quickly in the early church. So it wasn't perfect the whole time they had problems like everyone else but when they were at their best they experienced these big kind of broad sort of categories that are described like teaching that is instruction from the apostles about following Jesus and who Jesus is and they participated in fellowship that doesn't mean cups of tea at the end of the service but it means a devotion to one another shared activity mutual support sharing of possessions and finances They participated in the breaking of bread. That doesn't mean they had communion services every day. It's probably more talking about that they just had meals together. They sat around the the big table and they had people sharing a big meal. And that might have included some kind of a Lord's Supper, you know, remembering Jesus because Jesus told them to do that. But really the focus here is on on, on meals together. It's something that we probably right now in, in Melbourne, all of us watching this now, longing to do. Um, and haven't been able to do for a long time. They also prayed together, and this was a community at prayer. They persevered in prayer, seeking God's guidance and submitting to God. And this is not an exhaustive list of what you have to do to be a church plant. Um, this is just big, broad brushstrokes. Uh, for example, they haven't even mentioned baptism, and that was one of the main things that Jesus asked them to do. But it gives us a sense of what they were on about. And the last sentence in, the, in, in this passage from Acts 2 shows really the main point, which was that by planting the churches, they were able to reach more people and that people were being saved on a daily basis. The Mission Studies scholar C. Peter Wagner said that uh, he argued that church planting is the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven. Big claim. So when we look at that broad description of the first church, we are reminded of the basic fundamentals of what it means to be the church. And that offers a good argument for why it's good to plant churches, because it brings the church back to fundamentals. It strips everything away and says, what does it really mean to be the church? And uh, when you go through the process of planting a church, you're reminded of that. You forget about the programs and the traditions and the unnecessary rituals that a church might have. And I don't just mean Anglican-type rituals, I mean like the rituals of a local congregation that you always do things a certain way. 
Well, you, you strip those things away and then you're reminded of what it means to be the people of God again. The thing is, every, every church was planted at one point. But the thing is, most congregation members weren't around when their church was planted. I know that many people who belong to our church now, Mary Creek, weren't around when we started. But there are many people who are still part of our congregation from seven years ago who were there, who haven't moved away to another city or to the other side of Melbourne. They're still part of our congregation, but there are others who, who weren't part. And in, in, in the thing is, in most churches, none of the people were around when the church was planted. So the people have forgotten what it felt like, what it involved. I, I was inspired as a, to read in my research years ago uh, the minute books of an Anglican diocese committee was in the 1850s. I don't usually enjoy reading committee meeting notes, but this was quite inspiring because I was able to see that in the early 1850s in Melbourne, at the very beginning of the gold rush, there was about seven Anglican churches. And they, there was a lot more Anglicans than there were churches or people registered as Anglican. But they had about seven in the early 1850s. And by the early 1860s, about 10 years later, they had about 80. Now, that is rapid church planting for any diocese. And it shows you what's possible when a bishop makes it the highest priority for their diocese. When the whole, all the, all the Christians get on board, all the, the people who are part of that um, denomination get on board and say, we're going to do this. And let's not forget... Is that what, what, invo- what was involved because their version of church planning back then was a lot more strenuous than ours in some ways because they also had to build buildings, whereas um, we don't necessarily see it that way th- these days. Many of the, these original Melbourne Anglican churches were, were built back then, were actually built, but they, now they don't exist anymore. The church that I'm just showing you here on the screen is actually St Andrew's Anglican Church, Clifton Hill. And you might be saying to yourself, "What? where is that? I don't remember St. Andrew's Anglican Church, Clifton Hill. Um, some of you might remember the, the church that was over the road from Clifton Hill Primary School, and that was called St. Andrew's. But that, doesn't, that didn't look like that church, does it? Well, this, this church here was, was actually originally built in the 1860s and then added to, so it's kind of more of a turn-of-the-century building um, you're, seeing, you're seeing on the screen there. But it was described as like another cathedral apart from St. Paul's in Melbourne at the time, just in terms of its size and how many people went along to it. But the thing is, that church doesn't exist anymore, does it? It's not there anymore. And in fact, in the inner north, a lot there's a lot of ex-Anglican church buildings around. Just down in St. George's Road, there's a Hungarian Reformed church and there's, there's an Orthodox church on High Street. These are both ex-Anglican churches there's an Anglican church in North Fitzroy that's now been repurposed as the archives of the diocese. These churches come and they go. So every church has a lifespan and that's something we forget. None of the churches in the New Testament are, are around anymore. These churches that are so important that they've got books devoted to them in the New Testament, but they don't exist anymore. So there's no continuing congregation in Ephesus or Corinth, who can say, we are the continuing congregation from the original New Testament church and we've got the annual reports to prove it going right back to the beginning. They don't exist anymore because churches exist for a time and then like, like a plant, it dies off and makes space for a new church to, to emerge, a new shoot, a new growth to occur elsewhere. 
Unfortunately, these days, our denomination, the Anglican denomination, it's got many strengths, but one of its weaknesses is that it spends too much time trying to keep alive churches that are struggling to the point of being completely unviable. And a lot of energy is, is, is spent uh, and finances are spent just keeping these churches going, churches that really should have been repurposed for a, a new uh, church plant or even churches that should have been potentially sold off and the money used to start new growth somewhere else. A lot of devotion is made in our denomination towards the buildings and that I think causes a lot of problems for us. We as a, as a church, Mary Creek Anglican, don't have any church buildings that we can point to. Having said that, I, I have in recent years grown to like and appreciate how having a church building could, could benefit us, especially in COVID times when I was trying to think of ways to help support the, the local community it became increasingly difficult because we didn't have our own dedicated church building um, where we could, where people could come and pick up meals or, or, or that sort of thing. But having not having church buildings is, is also advantageous. It saves a lot of money, and it means we can put our energy and finances into more important things than fixing the slate roof or the plumbing. Most church planting does not require a church building. The church described in Acts two didn't have a dedicated, set-aside Christian worship centre. They met in homes and in the synagogue. And these days, most church plants either meet in homes as well or in rented local council places, spaces or in cinemas or school halls like us or theatres or they rent spaces in already existing church buildings. Mary Creek Anglican was planted almost seven years ago December 1st was our first public service. And we still describe, well, I still describe us as a church plant. And I often get teased by clergy who are not part of recent church plants, because every church is a church plant. And they say, at what point does a church plant stop being a church plant and just becomes a church like every other church? And my answer to that is, it, it becomes that at the point at which it stops thinking of itself as a church plan and, and stops acting like a church plan and has forgotten what it means to be a church plan. And you might be asking, well, what does a church plant think and feel like? Well, one quick way I could um, give you a bit of a glimpse into the, the evangelistic and entrepreneurial and creative energy that's around a church plan is to have a bit of a trip down memory lane and a bit of a blast from the past and show you our very original Mary Creek church planting promotion video that came out before we'd launched. You'll see a few faces here that you recognize, a few younger faces, and I hope you get a sense of the evangelistic energy. say that Jesus back in the day wasn't a really powerful illusionist. So I, I followed a Shahism. My name's Shah, so it's kind of my own religion. So do you have any spiritual beliefs of your own? Uh, not going into that. We noticed on the census data that um, in the inner north about 40 or a bit above 40% of people tick no religion. Whereas the average in Australia is roughly 20%. 
I, I think I, I like the challenge of trying to get the Christian faith alive and thriving in a deeply secular part of Melbourne. Some people have looked at me and, and said, you know, this is like a really hard area to run a church. It's about being outward and dispersed and present rather than sort of huddled away into a, a building. Uh, do you believe in God or...? Yeah, yeah. And why is that? There's a lot of really hard barriers in the way that we can't ignore. I'm really looking forward to connecting with people who don't otherwise connect with the Christian faith. Meeting people where they're at meeting their real needs. Creating energy in the community, creating life, so. Do everything as though you're doing it for God. I mean, we want to inspire creatives. New projects have a sense of excitement and energy of all their own. Whatever gift God's given you, you should use that to like its full potential. We're not just a community organisation. We, uh, we are the body of Christ. Well, uh, how exciting is that video? And uh, it was so good to see so many people there who are still part of our church who are now a fair bit older. That video was made by Andy Yu's brother, Zach, and it captures what I think is the church plant creative energy. Christians working together to dream and strategize and pray about what could be possible. Notice the joy that comes from starting something new. And uh, one of the things that I remember from that year was how we had quite a few people who actually jumped on board very quickly to be part of the plant, who were probably, you could say, they'd been in the doldrums for a while in terms of their faith. They, they'd maybe been growing increasingly cynical towards the church and starting to question things, but really still held on to their faith. And there are others who were becoming bored in their faith as well, who just weren't feeling stretched anymore. But they ch jumped on board a church planning sort of core team, you know, a, a sort of a, you know, I'm talking about the wider team, the, the 20 or 30 people that had sort of started to put their hand up and say they're going to be part of this. But what I found was that through their experience of being, of, of the plant and God working in and through the creative process, it's like the Holy Spirit smashed through the concrete of that, of that um, boredom and that doldrums that they were in and the cynicism. The, the concrete over their heart, you could probably say, I'd be fair to say, and softened them again towards their faith. And so this is another really good reason for planting churches because church plants are really worth doing because they bring life and passion back to sleepy or struggling Christians. Of course, the danger for every church plant is congregation, is that once it's planted, over, over time, that energy starts to leak and starts to, to, to fade over time. And, you know, maybe you have a glory years, the honeymoon period for a few years, but then after a while, like every church, the, the traditions and the rituals and the norms set in, and you can start to forget what it's like to be a church plant congregation. You forget what it's like to to be that kind of, have a taste of that spirit-empowered Acts 2 congregation. And of course, the antidote to this 
is to plant another church. Well, I've mentioned a few good reasons why church planning is a really good thing to do. Evangelistic effectiveness, opportunity to reset and remember what the church is all about, renewal for the wider church, unleashing creative energy, bringing sleepy Christians back to life, and reversing an old church's decline into comfort. And there are lots of other good reasons for why you should plant a church, and I'll mention them over the course of the series. Apart from anything, it's, 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 a, it's a really great response to Jesus' great commission, isn't it? So that's why since we've started, if you, look, if you were around in, uh, in 2014 you, and read the AGM report, the first one, you would have seen in the minutes that I flagged back then that one day we would plant another church and this would be a long-term goal. And so that's what we're going to commit our focus to in 2021. What I'm talking about is a second Mary Creek Anglican Worshipping Congregation. Uh, So we'll have the Clifton Hill Primary Congregation continuing and then a second planned congregation. And these two congregations will run in parallel and they will share the same values. So there'll be something essentially Mary Creek about both. And what do I mean when I say that? Well, it includes that both will share our vision and that Mark Jones referred to that in what he shared earlier. Our vision being that we want to be a church that has an open and charitable dialogue with the no religion tribes of the inner north of Melbourne about that dialogue about Jesus, that we want to have our active and transformative presence dispersed in the community like yeast in dough, that we want to be a church that nourishes spiritual seekers and a church that inspires creatives. But also our values extend beyond our vision. And these have emerged over the last seven years. Maybe they were implicit or tacit at the time or assumed or in the background we were thinking this is probably the direction we're going. But after seven years, we can say this is really what, we've been, what, 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 what we are on about. And that is we have a commitment um, to children and youth ministry and that we don't want to put that aside, that actually we want to actually prioritise that. And we've seen our children's ministries thrive over the last seven years. And also our youth ministry really pick up and have a significant impact on the lives of the youth in our church, but also the youth in other churches. And the appointment of Tom French has been so significant for that. Essentially, Mary Creek Anglican values is theologically like a peach. Some of you have heard me refer to this before, and you might be going, what are we talking about here, peaches? What I mean by that is that at the center of peach is the hard, you know, the pip, the core, which is our orthodox biblical faith that we have. But on the outside of that is a softer um, flesh, which means that we're open. People who might have slightly different views, that we're not sort of hard-edged about like um, just rejecting anyone who, who doesn't share the exact same views as us. I think part of our church is also the values is, is a priority of engaging preaching um, and teaching, teaching and preaching that's relevant, that meets us at where we're at and, and this point in, in history and in this part of Melbourne. A worship style that is open and relaxed and yet retains a real connection with our Anglican heritage. So we haven't like fully rejected our Anglican denomination at all. In, in fact, that we see a lot uh, that's part of that worshipping tradition that is very um, relevant to today. And we have, we've, we've shown a real commitment to having a high quality and inspiring music in our church. I'd say we punch above our weight in terms of 
the size of the church we are and then and the number of talented musicians and and the quality of the music in our church we want to keep that going we've really shown a commitment to justice in our church and i think what's been interesting is seeing three areas emerge that it has become our focus in our church and that is a commitment to justice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, climate justice, and also justice for women, especially in relation to family violence. We might There might be other areas of justice that we, we start to embrace over time and make a sort of unique, have a unique focus in, in our church, but these three have been consistent over the last seven years. We also are a church that likes to empower people for ministry. It's not just about the minister up the front or the staff, but it's about everyone being involved and using their gifts, including women in leadership and in teaching. Different churches have different views on that, but this is a value of our church. We have a high commitment to regular and persistent prayer, and this is something that has really grown in us over the last seven years. And then lastly, I think that's something that I'm really proud of about our values is our kingdom-mindedness, especially in relation to other churches, to wanting to work with and partner with other churches and to build the wider kingdom of God up. And this has been really well um, expressed in the youth, youth ministry, but in other ways as well. Those values are really what have emerged over the past seven years. And these two congregations would be similar because they share the values. But there will be differences as well because the people will be different in the two congregations. And I'll see it as my job and the staff's job and the church council and warden's job to make sure we guard those values and don't let them sort of drift over time. Now, inevitably, when you start talking about church plants, people start wanting to know details. When's it going to happen? And where's it going to happen? And what's it going to look like? And I can totally understand that. We've got to remind, remind ourselves that we're right at the very beginning of this process. But we have a bit of a sense of where it's going to be. If you have a look on this map, this is an overhead shot of, of the uh, inner north. And um, you can see down on the bottom left, left where Clifton Hill Primary is and where Queen's Parade and Heidelberg Road is and High Street Northgood and Hoddle Street is. And where that big yellow sort of uh, boundary is, in there is somewhere where I think uh, where the second congregation will meet. So very close to the Clifton Hill Primary. We're not thinking, you know, of planting in uh, Eltham or in... Uh, in sunshine or you know 25 kilometers away we're, we're talking just a stone's throw away and that there'll be like two little satellite congregations working together now one of the things motivating the choice of this area is that you'll see in the bottom or in the middle of on the right hand side the Yarra Bend development that's really close to being finished and it's, a, it's like a mini suburb, suburb of about three to five thousand people I've heard are going to be moving in there very soon and that's the old paper mill site and it seems to me a, a really obvious thing that when the people move in it'd be great if there was a church there to meet them but realistically where the sunday worship location is is going to be up to a lot of different factors firstly what spaces are available for hire whether or not we use an already existing church building what suits our needs when we first planted Mary Creek, I remember going out with the, the, the core team looking at different sites and we looked at the Thornbury Lawn Bowls Club, but that was too small and pretty impractical. Then we looked at, uh, I remember we looked at the Thornbury Theatre, the downstairs theatre, but there was no windows and the carpet smelt like beer and 
and it was only like about you know 10 meters for the any kids to run onto the road onto high street thornbury and there was a lot of things that didn't feel right about that i remember we looked at a the seventh day adventist church in uh, edinburgh gardens but again the core team i, I thought that could have might have worked but the core team didn't like it because it just projected old religion it, it projected you know i don't know there was something about it that just didn't feel right but when we found gold street primary clifton hill primary we knew that this was the right place it just it had a sense we could see how it could work there and we felt excited and that's going to happen again i'm sure as we start looking for where where we can have our worship center you also might be asking the question of when and i've sort of flagged it already but um basically we're looking at here's a very vague vague timeline the 2021 will be the the, the year when we we're forming we're praying we're strategizing we're researching we're recruiting we're publicizing and then either at the end of 2021 or early 2022 the 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 second congregation will be fully operating now there's obviously lots of um unknowns we don't know how COVID is going to affect next year things next year but i mean what we're guessing is what we're predicting is that if we look at the other states of australia what will probably happen is melbourne will get itself the numbers down and that will find a new norm it won't be like before but it'll be a new a new normal where we will be able to meet together to worship again in person but it will be with restricted numbers if we look at what's happening in the other states it might be just that we're allowed to meet as a group of 50 and so we're going to have to juggle things to make that work Or maybe God will be um, gracious and Dan Andrews will be gracious. I'm not calling Dan Andrews God. Um, but And we'll be able to meet as 100 100 people. Either way, we know that we probably will be able to meet in person to be able to plan and pray and dream and scream and do all those things. And at the same time, as we're planning and scheming for the, the new congregation, we'll be going through a new process as well for the current congregation at Clifton Hill Primary School. Because, you know, in a sense, the, the, the great thing about planning a new church is that you get to have renewal for the, the sending the sending congregation, then there's an opportunity there for, for um, new and exciting things to emerge. It's not just that all the action is happening at the new place. To both both centres will be able to grow up and, and through that pruning process, Gold Street will, will be able to have fresh new growth and uh, that will be exciting as well. It is true to say that, you know, I'm going to be honest, being part of the new congregation will feel exciting, probably more exciting at first than for those who've stayed behind. Those who've stayed behind uh, in the first congregation will probably feel a sense of loss at the start. Both both people, both congregations might feel a sense of loss. But for those who go, it'll probably be harder, I would say. It'll be more costly. It'll require more sacrifice. People have to step up more for the new thing. For those who stayed behind, um, it'll be a little bit easier for those people, although there will be loss there too and change and and all those things are difficult. Um, But both congregations will be of equal importance. There won't be an A team and a B team, although it might feel like that at first because of our history. People might talk about the first congregation being the A team, but over time... The goal is that both stand on their own feet and share an equal importance. And this brings me, just to finish up really, 
the advertised sermon topic, which is why church planting is worth suffering for. And we had our um, reading from um, 2 Corinthians 11. And by suffering, Paul, Paul shows us really a form of suffering, a, a physical hardship that probably we're not talking about in our case, but he, he talks about, uh, you know, being shipwrecked and, and beaten by rods and, and all that sort of thing. But uh, what are we talking about? We're talking about church planting being exhausting, it, it involving the sacrifice of our time and our money and our effort. It involves the sacrifice of us stepping up to serve in ways we haven't before and stepping out of our comfort zone and making sacrifices in terms of what is easy for us. We're, we're going to make things more difficult for the greater good. Paul was a was an apostle, but he also was a church planter, and that's that's how he responded to God's call. Jesus, when Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus, he went around starting new churches, and he talked in the passage that Andrea read from two Corinthians about how proud he is for what he has committed his life to. But he also shows how that throughout his ministry, he's experienced many trials. In fact, much of the time, he exercised his ministry from prison. And he gives us two really good reasons for why ministry and starting new churches is worth suffering for. And first of all, he says, it's foolishness to everyone else, but it's wisdom to God. It might look like foolishness to everyone else doing what I'm doing, says Paul, but it's God's wisdom. Look at verse 16. He says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate, tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. And then verse 21, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Now, he's being a bit tongue-in-cheek here. He's not boasting in the sense that he's saying, look how good I am. But he's boasting in God's power. He's boasting in the power of the gospel. And in both cases, he provides a defense of his ministry against those who see, says he's been a failure. People who pointed to him and says, this guy's not a good apostle, a good church planner. Look how much he's like been in jail and been, you know, whipped and running from danger and so on. And his point is that this all does look very foolish, but God has been working through me and look at what he has achieved. And the thing with church planning is that it does look foolish especially in a time of COVID and a recession year. After the email went out yesterday, my friend Adam Lowe, who's an Anglican minister in uh, Toowoomba in Queensland, who he prays for us and reads our emails when they go out. He, he emailed me back and he said, wow, this is exciting, Peter, because he could read between the lines of what I was saying. And he knew where it was going. And I said, yep, it, it's a bit crazy considering what's going on in the world. But, you know, that's what ministry often looks like. It looks like a foolish thing to do but it's God's wisdom. You might be worried that we're going to stuff things up, that we're going to ruin everything, and that this is going to be a train wreck. But let's trust in God. God has never been stopped by a, a virus. God has never been stopped by the state of the national economy. I'm not expecting us to be attacked by bandits or shipwrecked at sea, but we do face our own obvious struggles at this time. Nevertheless, I invite you to come with me and be fools for Christ. Let's do this and bring the gospel down the road. Secondly, Paul 
talks about foolishness, but he also talks about why church planning is worth suffering for because he says it shows our weakness and shows God's strength. Now, it's sort of a similar point, but it's slightly different. Look at verse 27 to 30. He says, I've labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And this is another reason why church planning is worth suffering for. Paul is not vitriolic. He's not saying that all the fruit of his ministry is because of how good he is as a leader and church planner. To the contrary, he is admitting his weakness, his many weaknesses. He's about to, just about to write in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians about his thorn in, in the flesh. He's fig, physically exhausted. And yet all this time God has shown his strength. Some church planting can be vitriolic. You know, you hear these church planters do these vision talks and they say, we're going to capture the city by storm, you know, and we're going to take over Melbourne. Uh, And I just think this is the opposite of what, what Paul's talking about here. This is not a gospel approach. It might be inspiring to some people in the moment, but that's not, that's not really reality. It's not me either. I know this is a bit scary. I know the stats about how many church plants fail. I acknowledge I am not the perfect leader by a long shot. And we are not the perfect church by a long shot. There are many things in our vision that we still haven't really um, hit a home run with yet. We're still trying and tinkering around and doing different things. And yet I believe that despite our weakness, our many weaknesses, God is strong and he wants to use us. So to finish, why is church planting worth suffering for? Because while it seems foolish to most people, it is God's wisdom. And because when we are weak, he is strong. Next week, I am going to continue this series. And please be praying for me as I prepare it. And next week, we'll focus on why church planting needs Holy Spirit power. And then the third week will be on why church planting needs you.